Made Awesome Podcast. I'm Eric, and today we are joined by a special guest. I have my father here who's going to tell us a little bit about his life and uh, what he think, kind of thinks about the world. So, Dave, you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Hello, my name is Eric also, and <laughs> uh, we'll see where this takes us. Yeah. Um, so, let's give a little bit of background on you, kind of where you came from and all that good stuff. Um, so, uh, let's start from the beginning, beginning, the beginning, beginning. Uh, so, where were you born? What year? And a little bit like that. So how'd you came to the United States and all that good stuff? So, All right, sure. Um, I was born in 1968 uh, in Nicaragua, a small uh, town uh, called uh, San Luis in Managua, which is the capital of Nicaragua. Uh, came up here, well, in, the story actually is a little bit vague because I was, I was real small. I, all I remember is meeting some people in Managua and my tia telling me that I was going to your aunt just to give everybody my aunt excuse me that I was going to go on a trip from Managua to a, a city in Nicaragua as well where I was supposed to meet my mom uh, needless to say that what was really happening was that I was going to be joining these people and they were going to be taking me on a trek all the way from Nicaragua to Los Angeles here in the United States, um, probably somewhere between the age of four and five. So after the first hour or so, I started asking the usual question the kids usually ask, which is, are we there yet? And uh, uh, unknown to me, uh, that question was going to be asked for the next 10 days because it took us about 10 days to reach Mexico and from Mexico, of course, um, I was uh, passed over to another gentleman that was a friend of the family uh, that he actually uh, brought me into the States. And that's when I actually met my my mom uh, here. So um, that little trip that was supposed to be a couple hours turned out to be 10 days and with total strangers, people I didn't know. Uh, but luckily, thank God, I made it here safely. Did you know that you're going to the United States, or was this kind of like I'm going on this trip? I did not know. What, what I have been told was that my mom was going to meet me in, I believe it was Masaya, which is another city, probably about an hour and a half from uh, Manawa. Mm-hmm. And like, were you ever like afraid during that time, or just like oh, I'm just just a young kid, just like you trust everyone around you, or just kind of like it's kind of this is kind of sketchy in a sense. Did you ever get that sense or was it kind of like pretty chill? Uh, it was pretty sketchy. I mean, a couple of times uh, we had some things on the road that uh, were a little bit sketchy. And then I even got sick a couple of times. So um wasn't quite sure if I was going to make it or frankly didn't know where I was trying to make it to. So you come to the United States and you're in Los Angeles. Um, Kind of like how was that? Was it this is what year is this? this is still the this is still the late late early seventies late early seventies late sixties? No, it would have been early seventies. Early seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, now during that, well, we won't really get to that point till the eighties. But was it still was it Los Angeles at that point still like a was this pretty tough? Let's just talk about the area that you kind of grew up in in that mm-hmm. sense when you came to the United States and how was that experience like? When I first came, we moved into uh, the South Central area. Uh, I was basically about 10 minutes south of downtown LA. Uh, it's right adjacent to uh, the University of Southern California, USC. 
and the area was gang infested and uh, crime, high crime area. Uh, basically, it was one of those type of neighborhoods that you either caught on quick or you just didn't survive. And then how was kind of life adjusting? Because you, well, you came here as a young child, so you were not really had that those Nicaraguan roots, right? Or were you kind of still trying to transition into become American in a sense? Well, I was young enough that uh, transitioning into the American culture and way of life and thinking was quite simple for me. Uh, the language uh, took me about a year to actually start learning it. Uh, so that, that was a little difficult. But the time when I came, um, the United States w was the type of place that you had to uh, learn the language and conform to the the American way of thinking. And how would you describe that? The American way of thinking? How would you, what would you, what would that be if you were to explain it, do you think? Well, first of all, there would be the, the patriotic national way of thinking that as Americans, there are certain things that we believe in and uphold. Uh, we believe in freedom. Uh, we also believe in democracy. Uh, and also the American thinking that we can do anything that we set out to do. Mm. So you come to the United States. Um, it's a pretty, not the best place in the world, and I've seen it. It's definitely not. It doesn't, doesn't look like that still. Um, so kind of like how was your, I guess, how was the trials you know, growing up in the United States as an immigrant and trying to make it day-to-day? -day? Like how would you describe that? I mean, it must have not been mm -hmm. easy at all, I would think. Well, you always, as a kid, you heard that uh, America was a, the place of milk and honey that everything was great. Well, just like any other place in the world, there's different levels of that uh, American honey. I mean, you have areas that are very poor, uh, high crime. You have places that are in the middle, and then you have very nice places that are, you know, where the rich and famous live. Uh, for me, we were at the bottom, and it took some time to get used to not only the language, but also knowing that uh, certain places in South Central you don't go into unless you know certain people and then also you have to be careful because there's some crime around you and someone might want to rob you uh, or beat you up for no reason so I mean that was uh, in Nicaragua we didn't have that because I, I was growing up in a ranch in the mountains and it was all family so it's a little bit different there you were more concerned about getting eaten or falling down some cliff not necessarily getting beat up just because you look differently or you were wearing the wrong colors. Now, when you were in the United States, did you did you kind of feel that you're an American or was that something you kind of gave up yourself or when you're in that environment, did people look at you kind of like different, like that you were kind of not yeah. American or not? It's funny because we think about being looked at funny and being treated differently um, by the American people or by people who have been here a long time there's even a subclass of that. And that is that even among the Latin American uh, people, you're looked at differently if you're from a certain country. Uh, if you're from Mexico, uh, there's a lot more Mexicans in the area when I was growing up. So there was like a hierarchy. And then if you were from Nicaragua or Central America or, or even El Salvador or Nicaragua, you were like the lower, you were looked at a little bit differently. So even then, it's like you were almost in a sense you were you were being uh, mistreated by your own people, which is the Latin American people, uh, which yeah, Mexico 
and all the other Central American other countries um, that speak Spanish, you would think that you would have this camaraderie just because you speak the same language. But no, um, you had that part of it too. But for the most part, I mean, once I learned English, uh, it, I blend in just like everybody else. Um, I do know that for myself, I made the choice that if I was going to be in this country, I was going to do everything I can to uh, get ahead and also learn the the American way and, and try to live the American way. So would you say that definitely if you're... If you were to try to identify someone as American, you would probably think that definitely the language, um, that's probably the one of the biggest things. Mm-hmm. Uh, culturally, probably probably getting into American culture, like the music probably, that you know, that also helps as well, you know, mm-hmm. dressing in a certain way. Um, w- would you say that those also kind of help you kind of blend, especially like the way you carried yourself? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, the way you carry yourself and also that self-identity uh, of knowing that you need to become independent and that you should be able to take care of yourself and the people that uh, you care about. So getting educated, uh, getting a good job, being able to afford the things that, um, the simple uh, things in life, um, you know, putting a roof over your head, putting food on the table and being able to clothe uh, yourself. Those are things that are very important as a kid. Um, we were taught work ethic. Um, my mother uh, is a very strong uh, woman, and her work ethic is um, one of the highest that I know. Uh, my father, my stepfather, which raised me, also worked hard. Uh, so that was something that was taught us. And not only to work hard, but also to be self-sufficient. I mean, as uh, our people... Uh, that are here in the foreign country, we should not be coming here to be expected to give anything for free. Um, Whatever we have is because we earned it. And that's something that I think that through hard work and determination, you can always try to succeed. And for sure, no one else should be taking care of yourself. You should be taking care of yourself. And that's something we learned as as kids. What would you say to people who, I and I've done a bunch of classes in this, I've done, not research, but been involved in class where we talk about this, but the fact that you have a lot of people who come here to the United States, mm-hmm. and of course, you're lucky enough to have the papers and the documents and things like that, and you have people who come to the United States, and of course, they want to have all those things or whatever, but then you have like this system that kind of says, well, no, you can't you can't be this or that because you don't have the right papers and all that stuff, and a lot of people find that that's the reason why a lot of people don't actually try to rise up and try to become a better person mm-hmm. because the system tells them that they can't. Was that... What, what's your opinion to that? And did you ever experience that type of like, like downtrodding, like the overbearing look by the system, by the way your you care, the way like your your nationality and your culture? I guess the first point just that I made, and then you maybe talk on the second point on that. Well, being looked down because you didn't have the right papers. I mean, that's something that even like I said, there was we were even a subclass just by the fact that we were from uh, Central America and not Mexico, but also you would look at because you didn't have papers and you were either called names or or you were treated a certain way because you didn't have the papers. Uh, now, we didn't start having the papers. That's something that once we got here, uh, we had to go through the legal system and actually apply and pay for the attorneys and do all the work that was necessary to legalize ourselves. Um, we became American citizens 
long after we arrived. Um, so it did take some time and it took some effort. And I'm sure that my parents could have used that money other places, but they chose to make the best decisions for us, for our future, and actually go through the entire process to get uh, legalized here in the United States. So um, once we did, I mean, it was, of course, I mean, it's just a piece of paper, but without, like many other places, you know, it's sometimes, you, most of the time, you need that piece of paper to get you uh, into the door. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously, um, I'm sure there's people that have done well without it, uh, but it does, it makes a big difference. I mean, for me, if I wouldn't have that piece of paper, I wouldn't have been able to go into the military, for example, which was something that helped shape and form uh, who I am now in many ways. So definitely, if you don't have that piece of paper, it's going to be very hard. But at the same time, you have to take the steps, which our parents, we were little, so our parents took those steps to make sure that they got that piece of paper for themselves and, and for us. And we actually had to leave the country uh, to become legalized. We did not just put in an application and say, oh, okay, you're done. No, we had to submit all that paperwork and then we had to drive from here to Nicaragua, which was like a seven day trip, stay in Nicaragua for about another five to 10 days and went through all the legal processes there and asked to come back into the country and then we drove back. Um, I remember on the way back, I, I got really sick in, in uh, Mexico City and almost died. Had to be hospitalized for a day because uh, I ate something that made me sick and then we made it back. And then even my sister had to leave the country early. She had to have to fly back with my mom during that trip because she got sick. So we came back and uh, into Tijuana at the border there um, and went through immigration and that's when we finalized our our legalization and we were entered back into the country legally. So would you also say that definitely during that time it was a lot easier becoming a United States citizen compared to what it is now? The amount of time it takes to become a United States citizen, all the paperwork you have to go, all the wait time, I think that also kind of helps the, the situation out a lot more, don't you think so? I, I believe it there was a lot easier um, but then if you you have to look at it in, in context as far as um, the the times I mean during that time they, there was a program that we we came under and that was a little simpler and the programs that they have now are a lot more convoluted and they require a lot more money and time um, but I, I still believe that in order to do the things right it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. It doesn't matter what time of, of, or era you're in, it, you still have to take the time and actually put the money to do it. Now, we were, we weren't doing very well either, and I'm sure the people who are here here also are not doing very well now. So, um, in the end, it's still a choice, though. You make a you make a choice to take the time and put that money aside. To actually do the things that you had to do, it's no different than than uh, buying a, a home. If you want to buy a home or anything special or anything that's important or anything that's good, you still have to put the time, energy, and all your efforts to making that happen. So, do you say it's all about the prioritize what you what you what's important in your life? If you prioritize, kind of like this is something that I think is important, something mm -hmm. that I want. 
then I should definitely put my time and effort into that. And if you do and prioritize enough, of course, you're going to have a lot higher opportunity to succeed. Is that what you're kind of saying right there? And, and yes, that's what I'm saying. And in most cases, you will succeed. And there's always that off chance that everything you do, it doesn't happen. But in the end, you still have to put in the work. And regardless of, of whether you know nothing's for certain, nothing's ever perfect. So either, either way, you put the work into it. So you also mentioned at the same time, um, I guess, I'm not sure if that was, I guess, what was your reason for joining the military? You kind of, you kind of mentioned that um, mm -hmm. earlier in the, so what was kind of your, your motivations to join the military? Was it kind of like the area you're involved in, you thought the military would kind of change you in a positive way? Or was it something else in that, in that regard? Uh, well, it had to do with the fact that I had this odd uh, thinking when I was younger because I was pretty wild and rambunctious and got myself into all sorts of uh, messes. And I felt that, um, well, first of all, I didn't think I was going to make it to 40. And second, I didn't think I was going to make it to 20 uh, because of where I, was, where I was growing up. I mean, everything that I was seeing and all the fights and different things that I got into. Um, I felt that, well, I'm not going to go to college. Um, that was something that as growing up, the big thing for us was, well, you know, make sure you got to graduate high school and then get a good job. Well, you didn't really have the mentoring and the counseling and, and the, uh, person to guide you and direct you in, in, in that, how to go about doing that. Um, funny story is that of course, I know who knows, who knows how many other people signed up for the Navy for this, but I mean, watching the movie Top Gun <laughs> and, and thinking that you're going to go off and become a pilot someday. Well, there's a lot of things that have to happen before that. And even if you have all those things, you still don't make it to that level. It's like 1%. It's, yeah. The barely one, barely 1% of the, of the 1% that make it to that. Yeah. And that's in, you know, okay. So I, I didn't make it that way, but. Um, had a decent job and I felt that I needed to do something else. Um, when I met, uh, my wife, um, she had a couple of brother-in-laws that were in the Navy and that were doing pretty well. So I figured why not? I mean, it's, here's an opportunity. Um, it's, it's not like they say, it's not just a job it's an adventure. And my mind has always been the type that I'm always trying to do something new, um, and something challenging and looking towards adventure so why not and i went ahead and uh, signed up and one of the th big things about me too is that once i do something i i don't believe in doing things halfway everything that i do i do it to the fullest 100 percent and when i joined the military of course boot camp was a shock um i didn't realize it was gonna be like that so haven't you seen what's it called what's that movie called no uh, they didn't have full metal jacket oh though. okay i know they did what's his name uh the guy who directed it huh who's the guy who directed it i don't remember who directed he directed it. uh space odyssey 2001 well no but i mean they didn't have the, uh, that movie had not come out yet are you sure uh I, guy... don't, I don't think full metal jacket came out before top gun okay yeah. I, i'm gonna have to look this up but yeah okay we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to i'll look, look it up, up. Uh, but either way i mean i knew it was gonna be tough i mean i my idea of preparing for a boot camp was doing some running and, and, and staying in shape, which wasn't difficult for me because I used to be an amateur boxer before that. So I felt like I was in good shape, uh, but I, it was just a mental part that I, I didn't realize what it was going to be. Uh, first of all, the lack of sleep and 
the amount of intensity of everything that they have you do was something that took some time. But uh, wait for it, 1987. 1987. Yeah. Full Jack was out. Yeah. Okay. Well, should, I went, you, sh- you should have watched it. I should have watched. It. I went in. in I went in in '89. <laughs> you went. In, you went with the Top Gun yeah. like cool experience. Oh my gosh, it was so awesome. But no, it definitely did not go out that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but either way, I mean, you you adapt and overcome, and that's basically what what they try to teach you, and that's what you end up doing. So the military was sort of my replacement for for college because I wasn't, and even even when I went in, my my mom didn't want me to go in. Uh, so there's a lot of things that my mom didn't want me to do, but I was went ahead and did them anyways unfortunately <laughs> in some ways and fortunately in others uh, this is one of those that was fortunate for me so what year was this it was 1989 1989 when i went in um, okay yeah i went in actually my first week of boot camp was thanksgiving oh wow yeah so i got to have, have a lot of things to be thankful during that time mm-hmm. and then i spent christmas and new year's in boot camp as well mm-hmm. and then when did you graduate I got out of boot camp, I want to say it was like in February, January, February mm-hmm. is when I got out and I had not selected, um, I was went to the aviation, but I had not selected a, a job yet. Uh, so they sent me to apprenticeship, which is to do like maintenance or um, anything they had to do. They ex- What they do in, in the aviation apprenticeship program is that they just expose you to all of them, and then you get to choose um, afterwards. Well, it's funny how they choose. They actually give you a job and, and send you out to the to the uh, ship, and then there you have to bid and fight for that position. So it's not as easy as the recruiters say it is. <laughs> uh, so when you got into military, you you know at that time, if we bring it back to history historically wise. Um, the Cold War is still going on. It's actually about to end because 1989 it ends. The, the the wall the, the wall falls, and um, so pretty much the Cold War is pretty much over. If not, mm-hmm. it's it's done. The Soviet Union's collapsed. Um, so at that point in time, when you joined the military, the U.S. military and the U.S. in general mm-hmm. was the most powerful country in the world. Um, did you ever think that you would ever have to go into combat or like have to be on a, deployed to a commission or anything like that or it was just kind of like i'm just going to just see where Mm -hmm. this goes in a sense uh yes i i always expected to end up in something simply because of the fact that um just want to say that while i was either in boot camp or an apprenticeship most likely boot camp is when the uh ortega uh thing happened Mm -hmm. so that was one thing that was all of a sudden we have action going on um and then i there's Every year you look, there's always something going on in some part of the world, and the U.S. is uh, finding itself uh, in the middle of those uh, simply because somewhere, somehow, we received the uh, responsibility to be in the world's police. And, yeah, so speaking of the world's police, mm-hmm. um, I believe it was 1991, yes, um, that is when the Gulf Workers, um, and you were, you've were you been in the military for, what, a year or so? About a year, yes. So when you're being deployed, did you? What was your kind of opinion on that? Was you, you more excitement than anything else? Actually being deployed to an actual military conflict? Because I mean, that's something that you guys train for, like to to be mm-hmm. ready for those things. Of course, you don't want. Of course, you know there's dangers associated with it, but you know that's something that you guys kind of they kind of drill into you, like be ready right. for that. Well, um, because I was in the aviation, um, I figured that we would we would end up on a combat type of a ship. 
Um, you have a lot of missions and jobs in the military. Some of them are, tend to be more combat oriented than others. Um, you, you can end up on a supply ship where you're just going back and forth supplying ships. Um, or you can end up in a ship that's actually going to be part of an offensive um, somewhere. So I ended up on an old, um, it's called the USS Tripoli LPH-10. It was one of those uh, helo uh, carriers. Uh, we carried uh, helicopters or, or the Harriers on there. So I um, had, a, had a choice to, when I got out of my apprenticeship, I had a choice. Cho actually, I was able to choose whichever job I wanted. Um, I was lucky enough to come out um, number one in my class. And as part of that, you were given the option to choose any job that you wanted. And I ended up choosing to uh, go on the Tripoli uh, simply because of the fact that it would leave me in the West Coast and also um, I didn't have to change my my your lifestyle in a sense anything. well my, my lifestyle but also I didn't have to change my amount of years that I was going to do when I went in my thought was only to do four years uh, and then any other job that I, I I could have chosen was going to have me do six years right off the bat simply because they would send you to school for about two years. So if they're going to pay for that much time for you to go to school, they the military is going to want something in return. So normally they wanted four years. So I ended up picking, uh, I think it was aviation bosun's mate, uh, which is were the ones who land, who direct the planes on the flight deck and the helicopters. So with that job, I was able to basically just go from the apprenticeship right into, and then you learn on the job. So that only kept me to my four year, uh, which was kind of weird. I ended up getting out and then going back and doing another uh, 12 years of uh, reserve. So I don't know, in retrospect, and staying in for another two years probably wasn't a problem, but when you're a young man, you're you're you you think in very small increments of time. You don't really think in the big future. Um, mm -hmm. So hopefully that you guys have learned how to think in the big future. Yeah. Oh, so basically, so basically, you that's the reason why you decided mm -hmm. to join the Tripoli. And so you're being deployed. Um, what was your kind of thoughts on it? Like, did yeah, you? Yeah, so so to completely finish answering the question, that's did we know have any idea if I was ever going to actually end up in in some form of a military action that my life would be put in. Uh, just because of the fact that you're in the military, yeah. you need to make that decision that you may take, you may have to give up your life. Uh, and if you're going into the military without making that decision, mm -hmm. do not go in. Yeah. Uh, so um, more deaths occur in peacetime during training that they do in actual uh, combat or these police actions. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of people that get hurt or 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 die in training evolutions. Yeah. Um, because of the fact that one thing in the military is that you have to train the way you're going to fight. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, there's been, on, just on the Tripoli itself, they had guys get blown off the ship. They, uh, uh, many years ago, I think it was during the Vietnam era, they actually had a guy get, get his 
be dismembered uh, by a helicopter that came over as he was coming up. He didn't see it and got taken out by the blades. Um, I myself got blown against the wall uh, by a Harrier and almost got cooked. So if, I mean, if for those who don't know what they are, the Harriers are the uh, vertical takeoff. And the way they, they land is basically just by pointing their, uh, their engines uh, downward. And you can imagine those jet engines can put a lot of power and a, and a lot of heat. And what was happening was, is I was directing a helicopter and then behind me, the, another uh, uh, crew member was bringing in a Harrier and the, basically the Harrier was almost landing on top of me just because of the way the ship moves and the air and everything. And then as it, as it came down, it, the wind just from the engines just blew me against the wall and um, I got stuck there until it landed. So, I mean, there's always that possibility, but we knew, um, I know it was somewhat of a somber mood as we knew we were going uh, into into a, a combat situation, uh, but it didn't really hit until like our 12th day on the deployment. Uh, we, we had just left Hawaii and it was imperative that we reach the Persian Gulf by a certain date because we were on task to actually be part of a, an, ex, an, an offensive. So there were some typhoons and hurricanes in the, uh, in the area. Actually from San Diego to Hawaii, we went right through a hurricane. And then when we left Hawaii, we ended up going through a typhoon <laughs> and we were doing some training evolutions. And one of our helos was coming back and the winds were so severe that it had to be waved off. And when it got waved off, it never came back. Uh, we lost five, we lost two of our pilots uh, and we lost a total, I think, of six, six guys. And we only recovered one body. Uh, and then we looked for like two to four hours. We did full search. And um, by the fourth hour, we received the command that we are to move on. So that's when we knew that, okay, this is, this is different. When you don't even have time to look for your own guys, um, you know that it's, it's, it's for real this time. And for, and, and we, those are, those were our friends. You know, I knew those guys. Um, and one, actually one of the pilots uh, with, I was friends with because he was friends with my boss. So I used to talk to him. His name was Mr. Love. I mean, go figure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, nice guy. I mean, um, we did a barrow at sea um, once we got to the Persian Gulf, but it was more ceremonial than anything else uh, because we only had one body. Um, but yeah, it was very, very somber on the ship after that. Um, we arrived at, at the uh, Persian Gulf on time to do our mission. Uh, so that was, oh yeah, just continue. Sorry. So, um, we ended up doing what's called, uh, mine sweeping operations. So wait, before you, the mm -hmm. operation you were part of that was up, that was, um, was it desert storm or desert shield. I forget which. It was both. We did this, 
Desert Storm, I believe, was the beginning. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the order. I get them confused. But we did both because we were there for eight months. Mm-hmm. So um, we were basically, uh, we were part of the fake attack beach landing that we were going to do. I think that do. was Desert Shield. Desert Shield? I think so. And then Desert Storm was actually attack. Okay. I think so. I should. I, I think so. I, I should know. I'm the military historian yeah, here. Yeah, you should know that. I, I was there for the, <laughs> the. That's the thing. Like when they say, like when you look at people who actually served in those events, mm-hmm. like your mind is so encapsulated in like the private view of yourself. Right. You never actually get a chance to actually view the larger thing. You're no. just so ingrained in what you're doing right there, which makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, which one was which? I'm sure when I was there, we knew that it, we were doing one thing, but. Yeah. Um. For the, we, we didn't lose anybody while we were there. Um, as far as for us, we did that, uh, false attack. And actually I remember, uh, vividly having the, uh, USS Missouri and the USS Wisconsin, uh, next to us. We were basically, uh, they were in our battle group. And during that time, they were shooting their uh, 16-inch guns. And it was just amazing to, to feel and hear them shoot that. And then the concussions, even though we were, I don't know, probably 600 yards away or so. I mean, you could just feel the concussion when they would shoot those things off. It was just it was just crazy to, to see that that amount of firepower. And that kind of takes you back to time, though, like World War II, pretty much. Just right. Like that's that's how they that's how they you know began their operations. And just for a little bit of context, I think it was I think it was Desert Shield. Um, basically, I think what you guys were doing, basically, um, in terms of a large operation, you guys were like pr- pr- pretending like you guys were gonna launch a, a beach landing. Um, and right. then of course you guys the, the main army went through came from Saudi Arabia over the beam over the sand bean and mm-hmm. that happened. So what was your, what was your guys' mission while you guys were there? That's it. Our mission, uh, part of that operation is we were going to launch our, our helos. Um, we had, I think MH 53s of really big helicopters. Um, they can carry, you know, pretty much a couple of platoons in there. Um, so that was going to be our mission. And then of course, to support the rest of the amphibious, uh, mission. Then after that, what we ended up doing is is doing the minesweeping operations. And you think about World War II, or when actual full blown ship to ship battles happened. Um, during the time when I was in, I didn't believe that was possible. I didn't believe that that was going to ever happen, because you you know nowadays everything's you know. Uh, over the horizon, you don't really see the person you're you're fighting, and you don't have these big battleships going against each other. So to think that we were ever going to get hit or anything was ever going to happen to us, I didn't ever yeah. believe that was going to happen. So so let's so that that brings us to the next point. So your guys are your guys' job was to help with minesweep operations because I believe it was Saddam Hussein who actually mined the Persian Gulf. Right. Um, so you guys are helping. You guys are supporting mm-hmm. the minesweepers who are actually doing the job. And then, uh, do you remember that night that it occurred? So you can kind of walk us through, like you you alluded to it, mm-hmm. to what you what was gonna happen. So so what basically happened during that night? So basically, what we were doing is we we had already uh, mine swept this area, uh, so it should it was supposed to be cleared, 
And normally while we did our minesweeping operations, we would have the mines, the smaller minesweepers. Uh, we had a small fleet of them. Uh, and they had EOD and uh, different SEAL guys on there that were going out, finding they, the mines. And, they have and, dolphins? No, they didn't have dolphins. Oh, damn. <laughs> no dolphins on they, this one. <laughs> so in, in this case, because the area was, had already been swept, they were actually behind us, and we were in front. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember waking up to a, two large booms um, in the front of the ship and just jumping out of my bed and grabbing my boots. And I could just see in my mind all the water rushing in. Oh, jeez. Because I, that's just what you imagine, I guess. Oh, I got you. Okay. Yeah, there was no water where I was okay. at, but that's what I imagined. Like Titanic? Like Titanic, exactly. <laughs> Except worse. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, um, got my gear, and uh, I was, at that time, I was working at the, at the, uh, at, at the Flight Deck Operations Center uh, with the, which is, what, old 10 level? Basically about eight stories up and I remember getting up there with and basically my underwear and my boots in about probably 40 seconds wow and then the emergency response team which is comprised of a, a many decks and many uh, teams on the ship uh, they set condition zero which is like um, I remember, may not may not be the correct term anymore because I've been a long time. It's basically, code red. Basically, <laughs> they sealed off the entire ship in 59 seconds. Dang. Which during training, I think the best we have done is like a minute and a half or two minutes, is like the fastest we ever done it. So um, these guys really really kicked ass that day when it when the when it mattered, and we didn't lose anybody and. Even though we had a a 30 by 20 foot hole in the front of our ship, um, we didn't, we didn't go down. Um, so, so we had a couple of guys get hurt. Uh, I had a guy on watch that was in the front and he got hurt. He was actually in a cage down on the side of the ship, um, on watch. And, um, he saw the explosion happen right in front of him. And then, uh, had a guy on the top of a helicopter that got thrown off. So we're dead in the water. And when we send divers into the water, come to find out we're in the middle of a full-blown minefield. <laughs> and if we move in any direction, we're just going to set everything off. So sure enough, the mines did their job. They they let the ship go in. And then they didn't they didn't trigger till after the ship was in the middle of the of the minefield. And then we had another ship that was supposedly coming to help us, and then they got hit. And they were a smaller ship. It was actually a brand new Aegis class uh, destroyer, and it was on its maiden voyage basically. And it their damage was so bad that it cracked the uh, the keel. Wow. That's how bad that, that ship got uh, taken out. So um, we basically spent uh, the entire day trying to uh, get the ship uh, buttoned up. And then also um, the uh, minesweepers 
just started to uh, and the divers just started to um, detonate bombs to clear away so what, what they would do is they would put charges on the on the mines and then explode them um, in a way that they would create a path for us to get out uh, so we didn't get out till I, I want to say probably the the next day it was it was even on the news right I mean, I don't know. I, well, I saw your video, so okay. it was it was it was on the news. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so like I guess I guess coming over back to that point where, you know, at this time, you know, the U.S. military really has no no real enemies that can really hurt you guys at sea. This is not World War Two. You're not fighting against Japanese or suicide bombers. So you did not feel like that type of thing was that could happen. ever happen. Yeah, I didn't ever think thought anybody could touch the ship. Um, I guess so. I guess well, last question: Did they ever like? Like, you know how, like, you always think that nothing can ever happen at that moment, mm-hmm. and then it happens? Um, I think you've had a bunch of those things in your life, but that that, that really kind of, like, seal, sealed the deal for you in that terms of, like, always being prepared for things yes. to go wrong. That kind of, that kind of prepared yeah. you. And I always, always know what needs to be done at, during those times. Um, so that's one of the things that I think not only myself, but everybody else on the ship knew exactly what to do, how to do it. And that's just all training all, right? Just training 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 like it's gonna be for real because you never know when it's gonna be for real right yeah i mean and and it's interesting too because even even saddam with his primitive weapons i mean uh when we were doing that exercise we actually came under fire uh they shot missiles missiles. with their scud muscles and i remember uh because of where i was at it's basically observation deck for the uh for the flight deck and i remember this the sea whizzes just going off. And See, this is our um, anti-missile, anti. What's it called? They're anti-air, but they're used for anti-like missiles or anything right. like that. Right. They're they're used to take them out. We used to have two in the front and two in the back. Radar guided. And, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and I remember them going off. And then I remember uh, hearing over the radio saying missile inbound, missile inbound. And you're thinking to yourself, holy crap, we're being attacked. And and luckily enough, their missiles. Their guidance systems weren't that good. I don't think they even had guidance. Yeah. They just had, like, this is the place we're going to shoot. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we hit something. Yeah. yeah. And most of them, for the most part, they missed us by a, a half a mile or something like that. So, it, but even even so, I mean, one luck, it only takes one lucky shot, and, and, you're, and you're done. Mm-hmm. So you, basically, from that point, you, well, you had to limp back to port in Qatar, I believe, right? We were towed back. You're towed back to um, not Qatar, uh, Bahrain. Yeah, Bahrain. There we go. Um, so you guys were towed back. Um, I believe during that time, did you guys? So you guys have to stay in port for a long time. Is that the time you guys actually got a chance to go check out Saudi Arabia and all that stuff, or was that a different time? That was while we were there, because we were there for uh, thirty days, I believe. Mm-hmm. It took them thirty days to get the ship back uh, in good working order. And did you guys get a chance? Well, did you guys get a chance to check out like the local scene or not during that time or not really? Uh, yeah, we got to go um, check out Bahrain. Um, we also went into Oman and um, Saudi Arabia. We actually didn't go to Saudi Arabia during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the time we went into Saudi Arabia, we actually docked in Saudi Arabia in one of their bases. Okay, and then what you did you what you kind of make of that type of culture and like being in that area and coming from where you came from, did you see any similarities or differences or anything you can kind of tell us? Well, 
in Bahrain, you could feel the tension that the people there didn't really care for you. Um, you were American, and that was good enough for them not to like you. Mm -hmm. In Saudi Arabia, it was uh, not as bad, I, I think. At least it didn't seem that way. Uh, in UAE, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, it was so parts of it were so westernized that you actually felt like you were home. Mm -hmm. uh, other than seeing the uh, the women uh, fully covered, and even us, we had to dress a certain way. We were there doing Ramadan, uh, oh, yeah. so we had to be careful. I mean, they had this thing called the uh, religious police, uh, so you can get yourself in trouble for doing certain things. And they, they of course, uh, before you are allowed to go, they, they uh, give you all the information of what the do's and don'ts. And being good military men that we were, we listened very well. And I'm sure that a lot of us ended up doing things we, we weren't supposed to. But in the end, we made it back. What was, it, what was your kind of take on the way they kind of did things and everything like that? Was it interesting, unique? It was definitely unique. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely unique. Uh, to travel up into the mountains of Oman and to see a home that's built with rocks. And I don't mean like rocks I could like you would see in our front uh, facade here and that they're they're attached to your to the structure as a um, aesthetics. I'm talking no, your home is built with rocks. Someone took boulders and just put them on top of each other on the side of a mountain and you're living in a half cave, half uh, rock and it's just you and your sheep and that's it. Mm -hmm. So you have that and then you go to UAE and you have beachfront resorts and malls like if you're in the United States. So you, you have both extremes just probably you know, within a, a 50 mile area. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's a point when you have, you know, it's kind of interesting how it's, it kind of mirrors the United States in a sense, how you have these two forms of property, but even more poverty in those areas because, you know, you have, like you just said, I, I, in the United States, probably if you live out in the desert, but you don't really have people building rocks out of homes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a home at least. You have a structure, but you don't have, you don't have a freaking rock as a home. Right. And I believe that the type of property not property, the type of poverty is a little different too because these people that are living in these mountains, they're living off the land. I, they don't, I don't think that compares to living in Detroit when you're in a ghetto and uh, you are living in, in the worst conditions compared to everybody else. I mean, to the guy living up in the mountains, he looked at his neighbor and the neighbor lives in the same rock house that he does. <laughs> so as... To them, I'm not sure that's that's necessarily poverty. It's yeah. just the way they lived for the past two thousand years. Um, so you kind of you kind of experience the area and all that stuff. Uh, would you would you do it again? Would you go to Saudi Arabia as a place to go check out and all this stuff, or would you maybe do do it differently? Do you think? I would I would go to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Yeah, Saudi Arabia is nice, but yeah. and the place that really left. Uh, on you. Uh, the, a good impression on me for me wanting to go back would be uh, UAE. Um, Dubai is where we were. And I mean, the Dubai you see now is not the Dubai that I've seen. 
Uh, it seems like it's got even a more extravagant and more westernized. What would you make? Because you, you spoke on the laws that you had to follow, especially the very religious laws you had to follow. Basically, you can't do certain things. Um, if we can kind of we can kind of turn over to more current events, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking on that point, um, this has happened a couple of times, but you had uh, some Scottish dude. He was arrested, sentenced to three months in jail for touching a man's hip in a Dubai bar. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you kind of alluded to that how you had to observe certain certain uh, certain aspects of their lifestyle. Um, what would you kind of make of that? Do you kind of like? See that as like a way, like maybe they've not advanced too much, or maybe that they just have something unique about them, and you probably just have to follow what they say. Well, anytime you're in somebody else's home, yeah, uh, which that being in somebody else's country, yeah, I, I see it the same way, yeah, I, and that is that they have their beliefs, they have their laws, and if you do anything that's going to put you anywhere near violating them, them you're going to receive the wrath of their treatment so mm-hmm. i believe that even for us i mean even us if we were young and crazy and <laughs> you know did all kinds of crazy things when we were there we knew there were certain things we would not cross the line in mm-hmm. and i mean one good example is this that that kid that took that poster in in uh, korea mm-hmm. i mean that's something you don't do i mean and that's just in saudi arabia i mean we uh, Saudi Arabia or, or the or or the Persian Gulf or anywhere in, in those countries where they have those strict laws and beliefs that you just know you there's certain things you don't do I mean they say don't look at their women don't look at their women if they say wear long sleeves when you're out in town wear long sleeves um, if you do anything other than that you're gonna find yourself in a situation I mean and it's not just those countries we were in Singapore uh, Singapore, I mean, you threw a piece of gum on the floor and you're going to get yourself either cited or arrested. I mean, they're very strict about keeping their city clean. And if you're going to be in those countries, you need to follow the rules. And if not, get out the country. I'm the same way about here in the United States. If you're going to be here in the United States, there's certain customs and certain beliefs and certain things that uh, we uh, feel strongly about and there's certain laws and if you violate those laws, guess what? There's going to be repercussions. So if you're going to violate them, don't be surprised when you're asked to answer for your for your breaking the law. Do you think that, I mean, of course, we have our own little quirks and maybe we can talk about those. But mm-hmm. do you even think those types of laws should be even place where, you know, women cannot, I mean, currently right now, women cannot drive for mm-hmm. such a long time. And just this year, they... I think it was in Saudi Arabia. They actually got the chance to drive, right? Or this, or going to the, to the extremes where if you touch a man's up, and in this in the news story, um, he was in a bar drinking, and mm-hmm. then he was trying to move. He was trying to not drink, spill his beer on his guy, and he accidentally touched his hip. It was actually a, an Arab or a, a Muslim man's hip. Yes. Um, do you even think those types of laws should even be in place, or is that do you think that is every country just kind of has their own little quirks, and maybe that's just the way the world works? Well, you have human rights that should be uh, you should be able to earn and and receive certain human rights um, and and being put in jail or or uh, being wrongfully accused and not being able to uh, go in front of a court and be able to 
plead your case and have a fair hearing. I, mean, th I feel those are human rights and th that should be something that should be afforded to you everywhere. Now, that's their country and um, that's something for them to figure out mm -hmm. uh, how they're going to do that. Um, I think obviously that's how the United States gets in involved and in trouble in many, many times because we're trying to have everybody have those same kind of rights. Now, if the women can drive now, awesome. That's, that's you know, the women can dress uh, however they want. That would be awesome. I mean, that's, that's a, a freedom that we would all like to have. And it comes to that kind of, we kind of talked to this like early in the week, but like the fact that we have these freedoms. But then again, I don't even know if they would consider them. I, I don't know. I've looked kind of into it. Some of them are kind of on the fence or some are not on it. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we, like, we, we can do those things is like it's it's, a, it's an amazing place to be, especially in the United States where you have like these freedoms and um, we can do a lot of these things. And it's kind of like it's hard to complain. And we can kind of go into like we talk a little about like women, mm -hmm. like especially like like we talk about the women's right. Uh, I'm trying to think of what the conversation we were having you're having with our with Isaac mm -hmm. about how there's something you should not or something like that you should really complain that United like we have a lot more rights than we do have a lot of countries. Of course, it's not perfect. Um, I'm trying to get to the point that I'm trying to make, but, uh, so you can say that well, there are things that we can still make better though, of course, right? You would, you would say that, or do you think there's something really we should be complaining about? Well, I mean, we, we've been talking about other countries and how the United States goes into other countries. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, there's always room for improvement. I mean, we, we, as humans, we're not perfect. And the United States is filled with nothing but humans. Yeah. And so the United States has obviously done some things that haven't, haven't come out right. I mean, you have this, one of the easiest ones to identify is us getting involved in slavery. I mean, for us to have slaves, that's, that's not good. <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's something that will forever uh, put a, 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 a bad mark you know, on, on our history. And I also believe as humans is that, you know what, we're not perfect. And when we do something that's not right, then let's try to fix it. Mm -hmm. And if we're repeating history and, and we go back to something like that, then yeah, we're not doing, we're not doing good. I mean, a lot of places we went into the United States in trying to do well has actually do, done, done worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Iraq is one of those that people will say that, we had no business being in Iraq. We had no business going in there and taking Saddam out, you know. And look what happened. We took Saddam out, and then now you had this uh, elongated war with insurgents, ISIS, and every other thing that went wrong in, in after we took him out. Uh, so it, it's not perfect. And all we can do is try to learn from like, our mistakes and try to fix things here in the United States. Um, we're not perfect in our own country. I mean, look at all the stuff that you're seeing uh, with the police brutality. And look at all the things you're seeing um, when we went, when we came out of the uh, slavery and then um, what Martin Luther King had to do uh, to try to make things better for, for everyone, not just black people, because even us, you know, Latinos, we, we had our own level of... Uh, racism executed towards us. I mean, Especially just... yourself, right? Um, there was a one point you kind of talked about before where you were actually stopped by the police because of uh, you were misidentified. 
Yeah, but I don't I don't consider that being uh, uh, done because the, my color of my skin necessarily as racism. It's uh, my car matched, oh, and I, and and my friend and I matched the description of the people who robbed the bank. You know, and then once they pulled us over and pulled us out at gunpoint with the helicopter and and SWAT and everybody else, and they put us on the ground. And as soon as the guy turned turned me over, the first thing the cop says, "Oh, this is not; these are not the guys. Sorry," and just let us go. So you don't think that was racist no, at all? I just being at the wrong place at the wrong time, and looking exactly like who who uh, robbed the bank. So do you think that those types of mistakes, um, I guess you can say that that was like a very small mistake, but mm-hmm. do you think that happens to a lot of other people because of their color of skin, because they've met, fit, they fit this description of that person, like they think the wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. And then do you think it's like, do you think it's like on purpose or do you think it's a lot, a lot of accidents occur? I, I want to say that it's probably a combination of the two. Yeah. And, um, because of where I grew up in Los Angeles, um, racism in LA, because there's so many, it's so diverse and there's so many kinds of people, mm-hmm. it's not as easy to identify uh, when you're, or I guess it could be, if you're being, if something's being done towards you and it's being done because someone's a racist, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to tell, I think, or maybe I'm just blind to it. Because um, I remember even when I was in the Navy, we were down at Seal Beach. Uh, doing a training evolution and we went into this place with what a friend of mine that was um, he was african-american and the clerk they were civilians the clerk called him in a uh, an eraser head and i had no clue what that was and he was upset he goes man he goes that racist whatever whatever and i was like really what do you say and he told me what it was it was like oh i didn't I didn't consider that to be a, a racist, but obviously he's, I'm not African-American. I don't know what that means, but um, tell you how, how blind I am to it. I was actually in the vehicle once at work and working with this guy that was a previous Navy buddy of mine. And, and he's driving. I'll take that back. We weren't buddies, but we were acquaintances. We were acquaintances. Yeah. Um, we were in, in in our work truck and this guy cut him off and he and he starts calling him a goddamn spick. And I didn't know what a spick was. So then later on, I'm talking to another friend of mine and I asked him, hey man, he goes, what's a spick? He, and he looked at me kind of funny. He was white. He looked at me funny and he's like, what? I, I said, yeah, what's a spick? Well, so-and-so was calling somebody a spick. He goes, Eric, are you serious? I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I don't know what it is. And he's like, dude, it's, it's a racial, it's a, it's a racist term for, for you. I'm like, oh shoot. I didn't know that. So he was like, so that's goes to show that where I grew up racism in to that level, like we see, you know, white against any other color. Hell, I think I was, I was treated more racist by my own uh, brown friends than I than I was from uh, from white people you know like I said earlier you know you're from Nicaragua and somebody's it, it seems like when you're a Latin American the the more of the Spanish you have in you the more they have 
they're more condescending towards the more brown you are. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so that happened. And later on, and luckily that, that guy ended up getting fired for something else. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't have to deal with him anymore. But it was just interesting how I have no clue that he was actually being racist or somebody else. Do you think, but yet he was never racist towards me. Do you think it's because um, there was so much of it around you? Maybe it just kind of didn't come to you as it or maybe if it happens to you less often that it kind of becomes like okay now i can i can identify with that or you know what i'm saying you just kind of get blind because it just occurs to mm -hmm. you over and over again do you think that could have been the case or or not i, I think that i just don't entertain it i think it's one of those things that i just move on yeah i i realize that like that person has their own problems and my life is great and i'm not you calling me a name is not going to it's not going to deter me for what I'm going to go do. <laughs> if anything, you know what? I'm going to be on top and I'm going to get there. And if you want to be racist, you want to treat people wrong, you want to do wrong to other people, hey, you know, it's going to come back to you. Mm -hmm. And I believe in karma, even though it's it's something that most people say it's it's false. But everyone that I felt has done wrong I always feel like, you know, at the time you, you want to have that victim mentality yeah. and feel like you're going to never do anything good because somebody else is doing something against you or calling you names. Mm -hmm. I just move on. And from looking back, everyone who I ever felt has done me wrong or has done certain things that, that have cheated to get ahead and everything else, their life has gone south. And... I'm, you know, thank God, knock on wood, you know, we're still, we're still alive and well, healthy and, and happy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a really good point. Like, you know, just, you just, I mean, it kind of, I mean, it kind of, there's, there's some points in people's lives where mm -hmm. the forest are confronted with that. And sadly, it's kind of going wrong for them at some times. Um, so I guess a little bit of luck in a sense for those things and just kind of being in the right place at the right time and try to, you know, try to do things right, try to put yourself in the right way and hopefully you don't get into those types of situations. Yeah. And you kind of, you just kind of talk about this too, how like if you're, if a policeman tells, this is kind of going to like the Black Lives Matter and all this stuff, if a policeman tells you to do this or that, then you should probably do that. You shouldn't try to like, try to defend your rights. Um, would you, would you agree with that? And like, how would you state I would that? strongly agree with that. There's a, there's a right place and a right time for uh, mostly everything. And in the middle of, of standing um, in the middle of a street as you have um, about 15 police officers in a helicopter and every gun is trained at you, that is not the time to, for us to stand up and say, hey, you got the wrong guy. Why are you uh, mistreating us? I mean, yeah, I was upset that my clothes were all dirty and, and, um, and then your mom was upset because we were an hour late to pick her up. But that's <laughs> that's beside the story. <laughs> but then once the once the cops realized that it wasn't us, you know, hey, they they apologize. You know, the guy seems sincere. Hey, man, I'm sorry. You know, you fit exactly the description. And I'm thinking to myself, guns are down. They're all holstered. They're not pointing at me anymore. Anymore, and I'm good. Plus, you know. Living in the in the neighborhood, you have a lot of run-ins with the police. I mean, sometimes because you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, there was one time I, we were late to school, and we were passing uh, um, the park, and we stopped to say hi to some guys that we knew. Um, we were on our way to school, and 
we we stopped and said hi and then like five seconds after we we stopped and said hi we had three police cars come up and basically just arrested all of us uh, these guys were drinking they had drugs on them and the cop told me told both sean and i uh sean was my uh uh friend we consider consider him my brother uh since we were little and he told both of both of us we had our our football uniform jerseys on because uh, we were going to play a game that day and he said i gave you i gave you five seconds to walk away he goes we seen you come up and we're like okay we'll wait for these guys to leave if they don't leave then we're taking them too and sure enough we were at the wrong place at the wrong time. He goes, if you would have just said hi and kept on walking, you you wouldn't be in the back of this car right now. But do you think the reason why they put you in the back of the car is because the way they kind of look at people and the way they kind of it do was things? We got arrested for truancy is what we got arrested for. Because it was like 8.45 in the morning and school started at 8. Oh. And okay, so part of you. So we got arrested for truancy. The other guys got arrested for possession of uh, drugs. Arrested for truancy. Is that Which, even a thing? That's a that's a thing. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And and your and your abuelita did not pick us up from jail that night. That's our grandmother. That's, yeah. Grandmother doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And then when we got back to school the next day, uh, we were suspended from the football team for uh, two weeks um, because. We basically made the school look bad by being arrested in in our uniform in our jersey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and that's the lesson I learned. Guess what? Hey, you know what I did after that? Whenever I seen people at the park, just kept on walking. Just kept on walking. You know. So do you think a lot? Do you think a lot of this? I mean, of course you can't really speak for people, but you've kind of you've kind of been in that type of situation though. When it comes to like people who like with Black Lives Matter, people who've kind of gone through those types of things, or even like lost their lives from it mm-hmm. do you think a lot of it falls on them for maybe not doing the right things or do you think it's also a little bit of, it's, of it's a combination of the two yeah you know it's a combination of you have a you have an officer that's that's has uh, a racist mind um or has had a lot of trouble with people with that live in those neighborhoods and is on edge and but just let's just say 100 percent hit the guy let's say you know the guy is a racist, yeah. and the guy is looking to kill somebody. Well, they, that, they, that, well, they say a lot of police aren't actually racist; that they just have no. I mean, like, that their training our, is bad. In our, in our example, yeah, in our okay, example, okay, okay. What I'm saying is, is that this guy is a racist. Okay. You know, you haven't just recently you had an officer that um, had already received a complaint uh, on him for uh, hurting someone, and then now all of a sudden he does it. He does it again. Okay, so as a person that is staring down a barrel of a gun or is being pulled over by an officer, my belief is that you follow the instructions, you move slowly, you keep your hands up, and you go through the entire process until it is done. Now, if he starts to beat you down while you're on the ground, there's not much I... I, I can do there, but to try to protect myself. Um, and I would protect myself in that situation by covering myself up and, and to try to keep my head and, and my other parts from, from getting hit. And then 
once it is over and you're in front of the judge, then that's when you bring in your attorneys and that's when you go on the offensive. A lot of people would say that at that moment when you're being beaten, that you would you would be submitting to that system who's putting you down. And they would say that sometimes that even when you got to the court, mm-hmm. you know, you might not find the justice you want. That is true. And especially with the recent shootings that have mm-hmm. occurred, a lot of those police officers probably should have been fired or gone to jail, have gone acquitted. I mean, right. most you know, in your example, I mean, that time you had the um, Rodney King is like the most perfect example of that. Yeah. Where you had a lot of those guys get acquitted. Right. Because of the system. Right. But guess what? Rodney King lived. But in the end, do you want to live? Okay. Now, if you die in the middle of, of, of that encounter with the police officer, there's no chance for you to ever find justice. You're done. Your justice is over. Even if somebody finds these officers uh, guilty five years from now, you're dead. It doesn't really matter. The, the survival is what matters. You survive first, then you fight for your rights. You fight for your rights. Rodney King's a perfect example. You know, the, okay, they had the riots. They had all this other stuff. Eventually, they found them. They found them guilty. Mm-hmm. And um, justice was served. And Rodney King lived. I mean, um, he even got some money out of it. I think. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you, you weigh your, you balance things. You, you weigh your, your. Uh, Outcomes, and I think the first uh, instinct is to survive. You survive first, and then you then you try to change change the world. Um, so you, I guess, I guess this is kind of like my thing. Um, like you have people who try to change the world in different ways, right? You have people who try to protest. Um, in my opinion, I think protest only works when you have like something like a Martin Luther King, where you have a, a central leader. Something that's organized, because that's one of the things that made Martin Luther King's movement so amazing was the fact that they had a leadership, they had a structure, they had a hierarchy, and they can affect change through that way. Um, with a lot of protest movements that I see now, it's kind of like, it's just like this one Facebook group, but then it's just like multiple different groups. Now, I think it does help bring a lot more, I think these, the, the protests we have now are a lot more wide-reaching. Mm-hmm. You're definitely seeing them a lot more, especially like, you don't really see the Martin Luther King thing until um, in Alabama, in uh, Selma. When you had um, all those, all those um, protesters be you know hosed down and beaten mm-hmm. by dogs, and that's when it really brought to, brought home that this was occurring. But you definitely see a lot more protest movements who can now grow up a lot quicker and with a lot more ferocity. But I think if you don't have like that leadership role, then it's, the protest is not gonna be as efficient, as effective as they could be. That's that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I feel like if you want to really change the system. I feel you kind of have to kind of get like embedded within the system, kind of like a virus, and then kind of change it through that way. You know, kind of you know work your you know get yourself educated, you know understand how the system works, and then kind of bring your own views into how you think the world should work, and hopefully through that way, you know get involved in leadership roles, anything like that, or it'll be like a like a, a figure who's gonna you know who's done things, mm-hmm. and then be that figure who's gonna be, influence that person who's gonna affect change. Who's going to be that leader? Who's going to be that person to do those things? I feel like that's like the best way to change like the system that we were talking about right now is through that way. That's just my opinion on that. What would you say to that? If you how if you wanted to just like change the system where we where we see a lot of these things, I I believe that 
the people who try to change things by simply just doing the protesting and you do bring attention to that problem. Um, the only thing I don't see in, in those, those efforts is that you don't see a coordinated effort yeah. on, on the solutions to those problems. What, what are truly the solutions to those problems? I mean, police brutality, um, for example, um, if you're going to only want to um, arrest the cop, well, what's going to happen eventually is, and it's kind of happened in Chicago already, is that eventually you're going to want, you're going to get a situation where it's not going to be worthwhile to be a cop. And no one's going to want to do that job to be a cop. And right now it's hard to be, right now it's hard to be a cop. Who, who, who's going to put, I mean, even the guy who, who gets brutally assaulted by a cop, there are situations where he needs a cop. There's always that situation where, I mean, let's say, okay, let's say you get into an accident and now you're stuck in the middle of a freeway. You're going to need a highway patrolman to come to your aid, put his cop car there and stop traffic. So that way the ambulance can get to you, you know? So that's another example where, okay, it's not one of those crimes where someone's being robbed and you need a cop to come in and help you. You know, there are other situations that you need the help of the police. And if you make it so difficult to be a cop because one bad cop made a, a bad decision and did his job terribly wrong, you're going to attack all the other cops. I don't see that as a solution. One thing that Martin Luther King and his people did is that they, they had legitimate, they had a legitimate problem. Well, legit, that, well, legitimate being would mean that it was it was widespread. It was authentic. There was nothing fake about so you don't think, racism. You don't think that the Black Lives Matter is a legitimate problem? I believe that not all the circumstances are legitimate. I say some of them okay. are legitimate, and and others aren't. Okay. Um, like, for example, I mean that. That one where that one gal was was sitting there recording. Yeah. And as a police, I mean, the guy didn't seem to be doing anything that uh, he should have been shot for. Yeah. It was no, he wasn't coming at him. He wasn't, that was, and now even that one, was that racism? I'm not sure if it was racism. That was just a, most likely a very poorly trained police officer. And I think also on that note, um, I've, I've watched a bunch mm -hmm. of, um, the Daily Show did a show on it, but mm -hmm. um, they talked about how, I, they were talking to some expert, but he had said the police aren't actually racist. I forget what the term that he used, but it's basically they let their, like the perceptions of people and mm -hmm. the way that culture is like presented those people. Yeah. And they let that take over their rationale brain and the training that they should have. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah. So there's not many police that are racist. They just have those little perceptions of people yes and they let those perceptions take over their mm -hmm. motor skills to then do those things right but of course there's always the one or two people yeah there's always that, that one so the, the, the back to our example of actually having a police officer that's a racist mm -hmm. that is 100 percent bona fide yeah you know this guy has had many 
uh, situations where he's proven himself to be that way. So you protest and now you bring all this negativity and you put the cops in the worst light ever. And it's a broad brush of every police officer on that force. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there are situations where that police department does have a responsibility and has the burden of making sure that this police officer um, is either removed or is better trained or, you know, they have that responsibility. So the broad brush, in some cases, it, I, I agree, it, it, it's something that should be there. Now, I'm sure that there's a lot of police officers on the department that know this guy, want to get rid of this guy. Now you have the leadership that's not doing enough to get rid of this guy. So, okay, but they're still good cops. Yeah. And in the end, I think the solution needs to go along with the protesting and the solution should be towards getting that leadership and getting that, that cop taken away from the, uh, mm -hmm. from, from the department, you know, and also like that one guy, the, the union's trying to get his job back. That one guy, we just, this is the, Facebook, where, the Facebook live shootings, that one. No, not that one. This is the, the one that had already been reported, uh, for police brutality. And now he beat somebody else up and it's on tape. Okay. Well, you know? I'll have to find, I'll have to find the, so I can put yeah. it on the description. But yeah, you have all those things where, um, I think the solution needs to come along with the protest and the solution should be directed at the problem. And back to the Martha Luther King, they were well coordinated in the sense that they have these problems and they were, they, the solution was to go through the government, uh, the federal government first, and then, uh, start making changes to the laws and then also putting it on TV and bringing, showing these people who they are. I mean, you got, that's powerful, powerful, uh, video of seeing these guys just attack with the dogs and, and, and the horses and beating people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, and I think the biggest change that you can make is the change of what you, one person also, you have those little changes that you can affect on people, you know, and, and it's like, if you see something being done, and you're in a in a place of power, you step in and you you say no, this is not acceptable. This is not something that should be allowed. Mm -hmm. And that's why also in these police departments, if they have these police chiefs and and uh, these lieutenants and people who are in charge, and they have an officer that is being that way, then they shouldn't be letting them be that way. Cool. And then last question, we'll kind of end it here. Um, so you you've kind of. You're still having a good life, still having a very fulfilled life, and you've had a lot of experiences in your life. What was the biggest motivation for you kind of going through all these different things that you've gone through and are still going through at times, you'd say? I think my motivation is always to be happy with what I have and always trying to do something better and something more. Um, it's funny because I... I, no matter where I was or where I lived, I always remember being happy and happy is not measured for me with what I have, um, necessarily, but just as a, as the big picture, you know, overall, you know, am, am I healthy? Um, do I have people in my life who, who, who I love and receive love back? Do, uh, I get 
the opportunities to do the things that I want to do. I mean, of course, you don't, those opportunities don't just fall in your lap. I mean, you have to work at them and, and try to achieve. Mm -hmm. So always working towards something. That's the thing that keeps me happy too. Um, I always say that the journey is the best part of it, not necessarily the end. I mean, of course you want to have uh, your projects come to fruition, your hard work come to fruition and have your projects completed. Or whether it's something to do with your school, your work, your your family, you know, like for me, raising my kids, uh, making sure that I always um, provided for them and that they become good people. Not necessarily, I don't necessarily measure them, their success and, and what they, what degree they're going to be in or what school they went to or, or, uh, what job they got. And that the primary goal is that they become good people, that they are able to, uh, go into any place, blend in into any place, uh, be able to do the things that they need to do, um, that they learn to be hard workers and have good, 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 uh, work ethic. Uh, good morals. I mean, that's that's my measure of success for for my family and and for myself and for my kids. And I think if you do that, you're going to be happy. Uh, if if you're content with who you are and, and you're confident with who you are and with what the things you're doing, you're you're going to be happy. Um, if you're always trying to uh, keep up with the other guy or or be somebody else because that's who you think people want you to be. It's going to be tough. You're, you're going to be happy. And the other thing is stay healthy, you know, be athletic, you know, do your, your training. Um, I also get believe your squats in. get your squats in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I also believe that as a, as a human being, you should be able to defend yourself and protect the people around you, around you, you know, so the same thing, you also want to be able to learn how to, uh, how to fight, you know, I mean, you have to be able to carry yourself no matter where you're at and no matter who you're around. And, and that all those things help you do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all I have. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of good stuff there. I think biggest thing is definitely be like, be the person you want to be. You know, don't be stuck in like this place that you don't, you know, don't be stuck. If you're down here or you're up uh, on the high, you know, be where you want to be. If you're stuck down there, don't think that that's you're going to stay forever. You know, definitely prioritize. Definitely do those things to get you to the the next level, and hopefully to take care of who around you. And I think also mm -hmm. to kind of like, you know, leave the world better than where you left it. I think, you know, make an impact on the world. You know, I think everyone's kind of here for a reason. You know, you might not be the person who's going to affect the change. You might be the person who's going to influence that person to change things. I think that's I think that's some good lessons to learn by. Um, I have nothing else that, um, that you have anything else you want to add? I, I think the only question that I didn't completely finish answering, uh, was how did the military shape and form my life? I think, uh, the biggest things that it did for me is that it, it gave me, uh, the ability to think in ways that you will accomplish what you set out to do, um, have perseverance. Um, I don't, I don't believe in defeat. Um, 
I'm one of those people that I'm going to die trying. And if that's what it takes, so be it. So the military taught me that and it gave me that can-do spirit where it's like, okay, this is the mission. Now let's go do it. Now, of course, you don't just wake up tomorrow and go do the mission. You got to do everything. Got to plan for it. Got to plan for it. You got to put all the work to, to be able to have that uh, skill, intellect, tact to be able to get the mission done. But it gives you that mentality, though. And that's something that in my life, I remember that ever since I was I was a kid, I kind of had it in me. But the military helped me really Probably cement out. that in there. And it also it cemented the fact that you, I forget the saying, but it's something along the lines of uh, you, you rise to the level of your training and not to the level of your hopes. Mm. Uh, so what everything you do in preparation, I mean, the magic happens in the preparation. Uh, you don't just go out there and hope to get lucky. Um, you put the work in and that's in where the magic's at. And when you get to the real thing, uh, nine out of 10 times, guess what? You're going to be successful because you put all the work in before it. And then if you fail, guess what? Dust yourself up, get back up and, and, and let's go at it again. You know, sometimes uh, you try things a hundred times and it still fails. Well, that might be life. I mean, I am religious. That could also be God letting you know that, um, you know, this is not for you. Unless there's something else that's that's more suited for you, better fitted for you. Mm. But either way, I'm gonna try like hell. And then once I, once life beats me, a, 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 you know, in the back of the head a couple of times and I crush into that wall, well then okay, let's try something else. Uh, but simply because of lack of work, I don't think that's a, an excuse. You don't be lazy. Um, get after it. Like Jackal says, get after it. Yeah. That's all I had. Yeah. So um, hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Um, they think this will probably come out on a Friday because I think that's when we're doing these. Friday morning, definitely. Um, but uh, Dad, thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. And hopefully we'll uh, might see you again maybe later. Hopefully. Get you back on here. So thank you guys for joining us. And see you guys later. Bye.